This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening. My name is Jane and this is the Beyond Zero Emissions community show. First up, I just want to thank Peter for the Doing Time show just now and for us to send our regards to Marissa who's got health problems on the home front there. So good luck with that, Marissa. Also, I want to mention that tonight's the first of the Beyond Zero Emissions discussion discussions groups, which are held on the first Monday of every month. Tonight's is 100% renewable energy and how you can make it happen. happen. So if you haven't been to a BZE discussion group before, you could definitely make this one. I bring it up now because it starts at 6.30 tonight. It, it runs from 6.30 to 8pm. It's uh, at the University of Melbourne. I'll give you the address in a, in a minute. And uh, the entry is gold coin donation. So BZE lines up a, a raft of uh, uh, very interesting speakers, often a little bit technically minded over the course of the year. Again, this is the first one tonight. So you need to go to the McCoy Building at the Fritz Lau Theatre, entry via Level 2 at the University of Melbourne. So that's at the corner of Elgin and Swanson Streets, Carlton, and you need to get to level two, the Fritzlau Theatre. I highly commend it to you. For tonight's show, we hear more about the Paris Climate Conference with the leader of the Green Senator, Richard Di Natale. Then we'll hear about the failure of Paris, oh, excuse me, then we'll hear about uh, more locally from Gemma Weedall from South Australia. Gemma Weedall is talking to Viv about phasing out coal, the union work on just transitions and the big project to repower Port Augusta with renewable energy, which BZE is right behind. Could this grid-connected town in South Australia be the first place in Australia for a concentrated solar thermal plant with molten salt storage. First up, let's go to Richard Di Natale and conversation with Viv uh, on the Paris Climate Conference. Tell us what it was like being there. I imagine it would be one of those big lifetime experiences for anyone. Yeah, it was interesting. It was my first COP. It was huge. It was, uh, I mean, you know these things are going to be big, but, mm. but it was enormous. And it was, I suppose it was part international sort of foreign relations exercise with um, you know, foreign ministers from each country participating. And so there's a, the uh, national delegations had their own um, sort of 
um, temporary offices set up. Yeah. But it's also partly a trade show, so you'll often see um, uh, companies exhibiting the latest technology and so on. Um, it's partly scientific conference, so you'll have a number of presentations occurring simultaneously on the latest science mm. and its impact, the impacts of climate change on um, various aspects of the environment, health and so on. So it's interesting. It's this blend of um, a, a delicate international uh, foreign policy negotiation, mm. trade conference and scientific conference. And so you, you get a, a little bit of each of those as you wander your way through the setup. And of yeah. course, it's a very ambitious undertaking when you take a step back and recognise that you've got every nation on earth in a forum um, designed to try and strike agreement on a very complex area of policy, I mean, the level of ambition is significant. So, you know, it, it needs to be seen in its context. It was a, it was a big ask, and I think in the end um, it was um, positive that, that we got something out of it that was uh, a national, a, a global agreement. Um, with a level of ambition when you look at the reference to the 1.5 degree temperature limit that I think is significant. Well, you mentioned the trade aspect, and I noticed that one of the sponsors was that company that's behind GDF Sewers, who own the uh, Hazelwood Power Station. Mm. Um, were you able to talk to people about that, about you know, power, people like that in those sort of uh, companies? Well, the com- of course, that company is also partly owned by the French government. I think yeah. they might be a third owner of the um, of the company. Yes, and they've got, as you say, they own Hazelwood, but they also own a number of. Uh, renewable energy projects as well. Um, I wrote to the French Prime Minister requesting an opportunity to discuss with him the uh, issue of Hazelwood and the French government's ownership of that um, old coal facility, which, of course, was uh, responsible for one of the worst coal fires that the country's seen. Exactly. Um, I also had a discussion with the uh, French ambassador about that very topic. Um, mm. uh, I think they're considering it, and I, I suppose the best we can hope for at the moment is that um, there will be a review of at least the French government's ownership of that, um, although obviously no promises um, were made in that area. Right. Well, we'll keep, keep, keep us posted on that. Uh, keeping on the idea of business, I read one quote from the company Unilever, who have massive investments all around the world. They said that the agreement gave an unequivocal signal to business and financial communities that the billions that were pledged will be matched by trillions of dollars flowing to low-carbon investment. Do you think that signal's getting through to Australia? Well, certainly getting through to business. And one of the interesting things was uh, both globally, but it's certainly a number of um, businesses here in Australia, they recognise that this is where the world's moving. And one of the things that struck me in Paris was that it was business, uh, you know, the business community, local government, and, of course, the NGO sector where um, a lot of the most interesting discussions were happening and the level of ambition there was very, very significant. I think here in Australia, it's starting to translate. It's in- interesting, though, that, you know, you've, what we're seeing is the political debate lag a long way behind oh, the debate yes. that's going on within business, within local government, and certainly within the NGO sector. Mm. Well, I have people here who say to me, oh, look, it'll never happen, it'll never be possible, and it's a sort of cynical but sort of arid discussion here, as I thought it might be a lot more fertile there with so many people very excited to um, 
see than you. Oh, look, it certainly is. And, and you know, as I said, business see that there's a buck to be made. They understand that the, you know, they're not doing it for altruistic reasons. Um, oh, having said that, a number of business leaders I spoke to were deeply committed to um, addressing the issue of climate change. Mm. But clearly they're going to be engaged in areas where they can see that there is a profit to be made and they can see that there are big returns in the renewable energy sector. Mm. They can see the big returns in carbon markets. They can see that one of the big opportunities is with those companies that make this transition, make it quickly and capitalise on the investment that, that, that exists. And certainly for Australia, I mean, this is, this is an opportunity to drive more international investment from some of those large businesses. It's an opportunity to create new jobs and so on. And so often in Australia, the debate is about um, the cost to the economy of acting on climate yes, change, that's right. but it's being discussed in a very, very different way, and and I, you know, internationally, and I think that you know, this century will belong to those countries that understand that the real cost is in not addressing climate change, and the huge economic opportunities lie in making the transition towards uh, a low carbon low-pollution, renewable energy future. Well, uh, in a recent article in The Guardian, you wrote that governments are playing catch-up, that others are leading, really, and the governments are sort of playing catch-up. Mm. I, I would say governments are getting in the way, you know, since, like, the, all the renewable energy has been sort oh, well, of certainly stagnant this government for has, so long. Yes. Yeah, this government has, has been a huge obstacle. I mean, mm. you look at some of the huge strides that were made in the previous parliament with the... Uh, Greens in balance of power, the Labor That's Party right. yep. um, uh, in government, the crossbenchers and the role that some of those crossbenchers played, a very constructive one with people like Tony Windsor and uh, Mr Oakeshott. Mm. And what you saw was uh, ambitious clean energy laws, price on pollution, the establishment of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, an arena to drive that investment in new technology, uh, and, of course, this government has abolished the carbon price and Malcolm Turnbull, despite all his rhetoric on wanting to act on climate change, is still committed to abolishing the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, both of which have been responsible for significant investment uh, in the renewable energy sector. So this government absolutely is getting in the way. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future because I just think that the momentum globally is moving so quickly mm. in the direction that it needs to. The business community, you know, the, as I said, non-governmental organisations and so on, there is a lot happening in this space. And mm. it's very easy to be in Australia and to become depressed with the level of debate here. But um, what is going on internationally is is significant. And I, and I do think that we have a narrow window in which to act in which to capitalise on some of these opportunities and create the right environment for business to invest here. And if we don't, um, our economy will suffer. Well, at the Chris, in the Christmas period, I think probably when they thought no one was looking, the National Greenhouse Inventory came out telling us that the emissions have risen by 1.3% since we removed the carbon tax. And apparently we will actually meet our 5% target even as the emissions are still rising. Yes. It seemed like a sort of an accountancy trick. That's exactly and what I it really is. I really wonder how people can vote for a government who gets away with this sort of thing, which is, well, would you say that's in the spirit of the um, Paris Agreement? I thought it was actually binding us to actually reduce emissions. Well, what happened was, of course, the government um, allowed for us to include 
uh, a reduction in emissions, not in this period. And so we're able to stick to this 5% target at the same time as our emissions increasing. And as you say, that is absolutely an accounting trick. No question about that. Uh, so the disappointing thing here is that um, despite all the nonsense that the government puts forward about uh, what being committed to climate change, our, our uh, climate change action, our, our emissions are increasing. And they're increasing significantly at a time when, um, as I said, the rest of the world is moving in, in the opposite direction. You only need to look at our climate uh, targets and the targets that were taken by this government to Paris, which were really Tony Abbott's targets. You only have to look at the uh, browning down of the renewable energy target uh, to see that all of the important policy levers are being pulled in the wrong direction. Mm. So what you're, what you're actually seeing is a, a decreased ambition around renewable energy. I mean, we, we were on track to have a significant uh, boost in renewable energy infrastructure right around the country until uh, the then Abbott government, with the support of the Labor Party, it must be said, agreed to mm. reduce the renewable energy target. And, of course... Um, both parties remain committed to new coal mines. The Adani coal mine, for example, in central Queensland, uh, a mine that will, um, combined with the other mines that are slated for development in Australia, dwarf all of our domestic emissions. So there's a lot that needs to be done, a lot. Um, and that's, I suppose, the big challenge ahead of us going into an election year is to ensure that the climate debate is front and centre, that people understand that the window in which we can act before there is irreversible catastrophic climate change is shrinking. And unless we do something now, um, not only will we miss those big economic opportunities that will create jobs and more international investment, but most importantly, um, we will irreparably damage the planet and all of the living things within it. Uh, unless we act. I don't see we're going into an election year, but everybody sort of seems to be besotted by Malcolm Turnbull's or George Clooney effect, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but, you know, it's just that effect of someone who speaks nicely and seems to be say, saying the things that people want to hear. But behind the scenes, Greg Hunt came back. He said, oh, yes, Paris was the most important environmental agreement. So he's on one level agreeing. And then he, as you said, signed off on the Dani Carmichael mine. And he also said something like this, the responsibility for reducing fossil fuels, uh, no, the responsibility for reducing fossil fuel dependency is with other countries. In other words, like the drug dealer's defence, yes. I'll just keep exporting it as yes. long as you keep wanting it. That's right, exactly right. No, I don't is. just don't I understand how we can't expose that as really very, you know, perfidious, really. I can't well, think of another word. Yeah, I, I mean, don't be disheartened when you look at the number of polls that have been conducted on this issue. What you actually find is that mainstream public opinion is consistent with taking strong action on climate change. Now, you know, there are um, there have been a number of polls that have been done, some of them in strong Liberal-held seats, where people do agree that uh, Australia shouldn't be opening up big new coal mines, uh, where people are very clear about their support for the existing infrastructure around renewable energy like ARENA and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. So I think where this government is at and where mainstream public opinion is at is that they diverge 
quite significantly. The big challenge, of course, is ensuring that the issue is front of mind yes. and that it becomes the deciding factor when people are at the ballot box. And, of yeah. course, that's a challenge that's, that's up to us. Yeah. But I think on the actual... On how, when, you, when you poll how people feel about climate, um, it's very easy to, again, to, um, to have a, a, a view that, that reflects some of the noisiest voices, but I don't think that, that those voices are representative. Yeah. And most, I think, sensible Australians recognise it's a huge issue. We do need to act. We need to ensure that we act quickly uh, and that if we don't, well, the environment will suffer, but so too will the economy. That's right. We can't just be freeloaders on the rest of the world going ahead. But listen, I'd like to move back to Paris. There were quite a lot of speakers there representing Indigenous groups and the Pacific Island mm. people. And um, I was sort of hoping out of Paris something like the Marshall Plan, you know, to show a clear path how developed countries mm. like us would not only curb our own emissions but transfer resources to countries where people expire in the heat waves, you know, and lack of water and just the basics that, that are needed. We should be aiding them. And I'd like to know what has been agreed about that sort of collaboration. Well, I think there are a couple of things. The role of the Pacific was very, very important in ensuring that there was a reference to that 1.5 degree temperature limit. Um, that limit when you consider that we're currently on track for about a two and a half degree temperature limit or even slightly higher, um, that, that, the reference in the text to that is, I think, very significant because it says that every nation needs to drastically cut its emissions if we're going to meet that long-term target. The other thing that was agreed to was um, significant funding, although, again, some of this towards the end of the negotiations was watered down, but significant climate financing and there's an agreement that $100 billion in financing for, for all those low-income countries um, will, will be necessary in order to develop, help develop low-carbon economies. Because we're saying to, those, to many uh, low-income countries that we want you to use an alternative development pathway to the pathway that countries like Australia have used. And if we're going to say that to those nations, then we do have a responsibility to facilitate that transition. And that's where that $100 billion in climate financing comes from. The great tragedy, of course, is that Australia's domestic response to that has been to take money from the aid budget. So this is not new money. And remember that the international development budget is at an all-time low and it's going to be... Um, we're not going to be committing any additional money to climate financing. It will simply come from the aid budget. So while that international consensus around the billions of dollars that are required to help those low-income countries is welcome, Australia's response has been, well, nothing short of pathetic, really. That's right. Well, Australia's committing, I think, $200 million per annum, and Canada is committing $2.5 billion. Well, well, that's right. Canada's response, when you look at a country with a similar economy to ours, has been uh, much more generous and I think much more in keeping with the spirit of the Paris mm. Agreement. Mm. Well, another issue was uh, John Keyes from New Zealand. Um, he was rallying governments to phase out fossil fuel subsidies and I heard before the conference that Malcolm Turnbull was going to support this. But what happened? Well, I'm not sure where you heard that because I was never optimistic about Australia's um, uh, commitment to phasing out fossil fuel subsidies and in fact Australia played a, a fairly active role in undermining those discussions. 
Um, I thought we might escape this climate conference without being awarded the fossil of the day, which is an award that goes to those nations that uh, are actively obstructing progress when it comes to climate change. But when those discussions around um, fossil fuel subsidies were occurring, Australia, again, um, rather than accepting that this is where the direction of many similar developed countries were going, we uh, took a narrow self-interest um, uh, argument and ultimately we, we worked to undermine any uh, consensus around an end to fossil fuel subsidies. And that's, that's disappointing. I mean, we could uh, tomorrow in the huge subsidy that goes in the form of cheap diesel fuel to the mining industry. Mining companies get very cheap fuel. They pay uh, very little excise uh, on the diesel that they use. And we could end that, we could end that subsidy, bring in close to $10 billion over the Ford estimates and actually go a long way to being able to fund things like health and education, which yeah. are currently under threat. And yet, again, because we've got a government that is very much in uh, uh, the pocket of big mining industries and big fossil fuel interests, what we don't uh, see is um, a commitment to those... I think policies that many other nations around the world know are necessary if we're going to make take the appropriate steps yeah. when it comes to tackling climate yeah. change. Well, I, I found that very disappointing, but I think Australia will have to be dragged by the international community to these <clears throat> um, things. And there are other fossil fuel exporting countries as well that, in fact, have this same problem. But um, just to finish, Richard, um, I'd like to mention to you something about uh, other Pacific people. There was a Maori speaker on Radio 3CR who had been at Paris and she was very forthright. She said promises in Paris make us into hypocrites because the fracking and mining haven't stopped, deep sea oil drilling hasn't stopped. And I wondered why there wasn't a binding agreement to put the brakes on fossil fuels. Well, it's obviously something we would like. Um, I think it's... Uh it's, it's the question of each nation pursuing their own naked self-interest uh, and not being able to have the courage to recognise that unless we act globally uh, and unless all of us recognise that those nations who are the biggest emitters, and remember Australia per capita, one of the biggest emitters in the world, uh, we, need to, we need to show that leadership. And so far... Um, we haven't done that. Uh, in fact, we've done we've done precisely the opposite. And one can't. I, I think one can't uh, underestimate the damage that someone like Tony Abbott did when it came to this debate, who ruthlessly exploited the division within the Labor Party at the time, uh, used the carbon tax as the um, vehicle through which to run a relentlessly negative campaign. And I think um, what that's done is it's shown some of those reactionaries and dinosaurs within the coalition that there's mileage to be made around um, uh, you know get obstructing climate action and I think it's going to take a while for us to undo that damage sadly I think the climate debate won't be won through a binding national agreement where each nation where there's a prescription for what each nation does I think the best we can hope for is that we have very clear targets very clear temperature uh, limits and we ensure that each nation um, is held to account through their own domestic policies to meet those limits and that climate financing for those poorer countries 
is adequate to allow them to develop in a way that uh, ensures that they can make the switch to renewable energy much more quickly. Well, thank you very much, Richard. I've just got, like you, perhaps to sum up, um, it is an election year. How can the thousands of people who rallied around Australia, um, how can they target their activism? Just perhaps one thing um, to focus on. That's a good question. Um, I would be contacting uh, every uh, MP in a marginal seat uh, and letting them know that uh, the number one issue that will decide their vote will be uh, their party's response to climate change. And in the end, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your view, um, it is the, the naked electoral politics that decide election results and, I th- and, and ultimately the policies taken by, by each party. And so unless there's some electoral pain, uh, you'll find that you won't get much of a shift in uh, either of the major parties' position on this. All right, well, you've given us enough fuel to be angry at the present government, but thank you very much for speaking to us. Pleasure. Thank you. That was Senator Richard Di Natale uh, speaking to us. Thank you. And Senator Di Natale is, of course, the leaders of the Greens Party. And while we're on the Greens Party, they have actually released a Renew Australia document which is available on their website Uh, the target for that document which I must say I haven't read uh, but they claim to have a target of over 90% renewables by 2030 so that's worth at least having a look at it's at uh, accessible at renewaustralia.org.au people out there in the radio world show some love to 3CR you know, and if you're listening and enjoying the programs here, man, great radio station. It is how how it was built by community and the community ownership, and that's a powerful thing to have within community. So show some love, show some support, and please subscribe. From the north to the south to the east to the west, let the baller take you home. Island style represent, your soul to the flow. Love your set, represent. Raise your pride to the sky. Love it like it's the best. My power, bring it back home. And this is, of course, the BZE show on 3CR, accessible via 8.55am, the website, live streaming at 3cr.org.au or most shows you can download or listen to as a podcast, including this one. Next up, we have a representative from the Sustainable Living Festival, Luke Taylor. And as you probably know by now, if you live in Melbourne, uh, the Sustainable Living Festival is approaching something of a institution. Uh, not only does it have events in Melbourne, but uh, also statewide. And it runs from the 6th to the 28th of February, with what they're billing as a very big weekend on uh, the 12th of February, Friday the 12th to Sunday the 14th. So have a listen to Luke Taylor in conversation with Vivian. I've come to the office of the Sustainable Living Foundation because I want to catch up with Luke Taylor and learn about how he puts the festival together. And note this, listeners, the festival is coming soon on starting on the 8th of February and the big weekend is the weekend of the... 12th to the 14th of February. OK, now we've heard Luke's voice. Welcome, <laughs> Luke. Um, look, look, I worry about people being a bit self-satisfied about what they do. We can blame the coal mines and we can blame the government, but our actual per capita emissions in Australia should shock us into changing our behaviour, and I don't think it 
most people are really trying to change their behaviour or lighten their footprints, as it were. Um, people don't cut down on flying, for example. Lots of people just fly for nothing, especially just interstate. So how do you think the Sustainable Living Festival will sort of accelerate this kind of behavioural change, give them a bit of a dose of salts? Well, it's, it's the mother of all questions, I think, really, because that's, that's the central purpose of the festival is, is accelerating the change. And it's um, something that we every year grap- grapple with. Um, how are we going to create this acceleration of change? Um, because what's happening, as you would be well aware and many of your listeners, is that um, every year um, the situation, particularly with the climate, um, is getting worse and worse. Um, so therefore what we need to change gets bigger and bigger. Um, so <laughs> the, 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 the difficulty is the size and the, 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 the scale and the speed of action required is, is massive. It, it's, it's really got to the point now where we know that we're facing a climate emergency and like when we know that there's an emergency, whether it's with the fires or the floods or whatever it may be, um, in our sort of normal thinking, we create an emergency response. And that's something that we haven't done yet with the climate crisis. We haven't, um, as a society, um, faced the climate crisis in, res- in regards to looking at it like an, an emergency situation. So we don't have an emergency plan. Mm-hmm. So because we haven't got an emergency plan, then we don't have the kind of the, the scale and speed of action required to, to fix the problem or to, to work towards solutions, I should say. So we are in this situation where awareness is still really important. You know, we have to build the awareness, but it's not just awareness at possibly the, 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 the level that we've, and I say we in terms of in the environment movement, have been thinking for you know, some time, even though we all know that the problem is huge. But we've got to find ways that we can really scale up that awareness to the level of you know, an emergency response. Um, and that's the challenge for SLF. I mean, we're an organisation who um, tries very hard to get out to the mainstream and try to build bridges with, 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 uh, with people in their everyday living situations. And talking about emergency responses to sustainability and to, to the climate crisis is a really big challenge. So... Um, so I think wherever possible, we're really looking to have that conversation with, with people about um, that the, the scale of the problem. And once you can start to explain to people or get that awareness about the scale of the problem, you've then got to also have in your kit bag um, some idea and some sense of the, the response, the, the level of response and, and the actions then um, that not only that they can take, but the reality is what we need now is, is large-scale you know, um, support from obviously our government institutions, um, businesses and so forth who can get on board with an emergency response to the climate crisis. Well, listening to this, listeners, you might think it's rather a grim sort of situation, but the Sustainable Living Festival, I always look forward to it because it's like a picnic or a circus. It's very much a, a pretty sort of thing. It's all along the Riara River there and all these 
people there telling you about how to improve your veggie garden and various stalls that are most interesting, how to put in a better solar heat hot water service, or but those kind of nuts and bolts things. But you can talk to people too, and they it's all interesting. And there's talks, and it's animated. It's got a sort of a family friendly feel about it. So, Luke, you've done that, and I you created this sort of event. Um, how has your change thinking changed around solutions? You know, you you create this event, but what what's different about it over the years? What what's different about it this year? Yeah, I guess um, just following what you're saying in terms of coming off the back of describing mm. the you know the emergency situation and and the crisis and so forth. I mean, you know, we're now into our seventeenth um, festival, coming up to our twenty. 20th anniversary not too far away and and right from the beginning you know the foundation SLF was very particular about choosing a festival model as the as the format as the vehicle mm. to be able to make its contribution to creating change and um, we looked around the world at um, other movements and and other um, large-scale festivals and events that were happening and really saw that the capacity that that they have for cultural change and we were always an organization that's been about you know changing the culture and um, we looked at um, uh, you know Brazil the carnival in mm. Brazil and and you look at those huge events and you know they have people that dedicate their whole lives mm. to to those events yeah. and those festivals and it, it is part of the culture mm. and so um, we looked at those models and thought you know that 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 is something that we really aim to work towards you know we've for a long time have measured ourselves off major festivals mm. across Melbourne and throughout Australia and we really firmly believe that it is it is critical for Australia to have a time in the calendar year where we celebrate sustainability our achievements um, and also looking at obviously the gaps um, yeah. that we still need to close in terms of getting to a sustainable future. So it's you know it's 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 really critical for I think for for the for the city for the state and the country mm-hmm. to be able to have that time of year to be able to to celebrate in this way. I think it celebrates cooperation and collaboration and people um, just being happy with having trucks in the backyard instead of maybe going on a holiday to Bali. I know I'm on the flight thing at the moment but really you know we, we have got used to such a exotic life really. My grandmother never went anywhere and now I've traveled all around the world and I still can if I didn't care about the carbon footprint but I think at the Sustainable Living Festival you meet people who are just happy in their little community they celebrate community so that's what I get out of it look let's get to the talks there's uh, quite a few of them the one I thought was going to be interesting on Saturday listeners it's at 1.30 at the festival Uh, it's on economic growth and I think it's really hard for us to think about that we are very immersed in a growth mindset you know every stock exchange report tells us we want growth in everything and it seems like the air we breathe you know we're sort of it's a patriotic duty to consume so that we'll have growth and we fear collapse of the economy like we fear war so what are the alternatives you're exploring with the uh, people you've invited well, I think this is an interesting one because it, it, it's really a, an event to also shake up our thinking about growth. I mean, we, we often, certainly in the environment movement, are very, very concerned about um, 
the growth of an economy that's based on physical, um, you know, um, products, you know, for example, obviously because the impact that many of them can have on the environment. But um, the, the concept of growth, I think, is an interesting one because you can have, you can have growth in good things mm. um, as well. And, and so, um, so our panellists are really going to be talking about um, rethinking good growth in our economic um, framework. Um, and, you know, can, and this mm. is the provocative uh, angle can uh, a form of economic growth um, that is uh, that is orientated towards a sustainable society um, actually work um, in favour um, for for the planet? So it's. It's 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 definitely going to look at the aspects of the, the what we would consider to be the negative side of economic growth, but it also wants to explore are there positive aspects um, to looking at the concept of a, a growth economy. Okay. Well, another one of the talks is about um, uh, divestment, and that's gained a lot of momentum, I think, since we last talked. And it, the session about that is on Saturday at three thirty. And I'd like to know why is that session called? democratizing capital well this one um, is being presented by future super and um, they've uh, been able to talk um, John Hewson coming down to the uh-huh. big weekend of the festival yeah. to um, to put uh, to put him in the spotlight um, John's obviously been working um, a lot in the divestment uh, area for for quite some time now and it'll be fascinating to hear um, where he's currently at with with some of his thinking um, um, and of of course, um, the great uh, work of market forces will also be represented, which um, we would all, mm-hmm. um, you know, take a lot of heart from the the great uh, the great work that they've been doing across um, the last uh, number of years as well. So, so that's happening down at the, the greenhouse at Burung Mar on um, the big weekend um, on the thirteenth of February, um, and definitely uh, an event not to be not to be missed. Okay, well, the main thing I think we mustn't miss is the great debate. And if you do miss it, listeners, I'm hoping we can broadcast it. But it's going to be a, uh, like a, a debate who's winning you know, among the states. And I, I love the line-up here. They've got John Kay, who is the New South Wales Greens candidate. You may have heard me interviewing him lots of times. He never stops pushing renewable energy. He just wants to get cracking on that, and he wants New South Wales to be the best. But he's also a very entertaining speaker. And then Victoria... Uh, we have representing uh, Victoria, uh, the Beyond Zero Radio's own Miwa Tomanaga, who is an absolute model of grassroots organising, and nothing puts her off. She's always happy, it's infectious, and I think she'll give a marvellous talk on why Victoria is winning the race to get renewables. You remember the RET, which was the federal system of getting um, renewable energy targets reached, but if the states all had a race to uh, get a higher target then we, we could get 100% renewables I think. Tell us about that one. Yeah well we're wrapped to have Miwa representing uh, Vic- Victoria uh, uh, on behalf of Beyond Zero Emissions. Uh, look this is this is definitely the one of the feature events of the festival as it is each year. Um, but yeah, this year we've we've really been looking at um, how each of the states have been going not only in terms of their race um, their own races to 
renewable energy targets, but this is specifically about the race to 100% renewables, which I know will resonate with a lot of the Beyond Zero Emissions audience, um, because um, we know that we need to achieve 100% renewables. Um, uh, anything less is just not going to do the job, and we know that we need to do it in very short time frames. So this is a challenge out to the states and the territories to say, show us your model for 100% renewables as fast as you can, obviously, to win the race. Um, and not only do they have to outline the technical plan, which is something that mm -hmm. BZE is quite um, famous for, but they have to also explain to them what is their uh, political and social plan for the for mm. to, cre to create the transition. And as we know, that's somewhat at the moment, mm. that's the harder end mm. of the stick. The, the technical, we know we've got the technical capacity to be able to do this. It's been proven by Beyond Zero Emissions and other organisations over the, after the last years. But what we haven't got at the moment is we haven't got the plans to how do you actually make that politically possible possible and socially possible. And that's the work that really needs to happen. So our, our, our uh, race team members <laughs> are going to stand up and, um, and articulate that and, uh, and debate their own... Um, there are uh, their own teams um, at uh, at the event uh, at again it's a greenhouse event on mm. Friday the twelfth um, of February. And you have to book for that one usually. Definitely book book online and tickets will go pretty quick. So um, head on to the website. Okay, most of those other talks we talked said are free, so it's another lovely thing. You just float around and talk to people about all sorts of things, permaculture, chooks, hot water services, and everything. And then you wander in and hear a talk, usually by these very, you know, cutting edge people. So thank you Luke. Oh, there's one more thing. We've got one more minute. Can you tell us about the forests? You're going to talk about the Great National Park oh, yes. and we've done a program on that and I'd like to keep coming back to that because it's not a reality yet but the people up there are going to really try hard to make it a reality. So what, what have you got about that? Yeah look this is a really important one as well. Uh, this is a campaign obviously that has been running for quite some time. It's the Great National, Great Forest National Park campaign um, and and uh, there'll be a big forum uh, down at the greenhouse uh, on Sunday at 12 p.m. Um, it's called Breakthrough for Our Forests. It's a it's a must come and support. Uh, David Lindemeyer, um, who has um, been working in this field particularly to, to help try and save the Victoria's leadbeater possum, is is going to be at the event and keynote addressing and giving us a really big update on on where things are at at the moment. There's some some promising signs. Um, but there's a lot of work still to be done and this is a, a critical event in the in the festival and a critical campaign for Victoria. Okay, thank you very much. We've been talking to Luke Taylor from the Sustainable Living Festival Committee. Gemma Weedle is with us from South Australia. She played a big part in the Repower Port Augusta movement with a group called Clean and she went to Cochabamba at the Climate Summit in 2010, which I was very interested to hear she was there. Like Naomi Klein, she sees that the urgent need for climate action will change everything. So, Gemma, is that a fair uh, introduction? And what have I left out? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Um, I guess I've been a climate activist for about six years. Um, yeah, involved in the Climate Emergency Action Network in South Australia 
and also a member of Socialist Alliance and Right for Green Left Weekly. Um, so, yeah. Oh, good. All right. Well, listeners, you're going to get a very interesting take on this because if you read Green Left Weekly, you'll see Gemma's reporting on climate action quite frequently. So she's got her finger on the pulse. But, Gemma, let's go to Port Augusta first. The last interview I did about that was uh, on the eve of hundreds of workers um, getting the sack um, at the Lee Creek coal mine, which used to supply the old coal-fired power station, which is being phased out. And we are hoping, you know, that there'll be a solar plant there. Are there any plans to offer new jobs or skills to these workers? Yeah, so it's still a pretty dire situation in Port Augusta for the workers there. So we have seen uh, around 300 jobs, I think over 300 jobs lost in terms of the the impending closure of the Port Augusta power station and the Lee Creek coal mine, as you said. Um, this has been done without any sort of transition plan at this stage, so it's really appalling on behalf of the, the state government and the company that just left these workers high and dry, really, um, with, with quite short notice that they'll be they'll be losing their jobs, many of them before Christmas and some in the early in the new year. Um, so it, this makes it all the more urgent that we do have an alternative plan for, for an energy industry in the region. Um, so at the moment... There has been a bid by a U.S. company, Solar Reserve, um, in the ACT reverse auction to um, put in a, a proposal to, to build solar thermal in Port Augusta, which is is a really great step mm-hmm. forward. Um, but what we really need is some more practical and um, strong support from the state government in South Australia backing that up, um, and also just a, a better commitment from the SA government to... Mm-hmm have a plan for just transitions for workers. So have a plan for workers who are going to be impacted by these uh, fossil fuel industries closing um, and so they can be retrained. Yes, I think this is a, um, you know, from a socialist point of view, I think you would expect governments to take a lot more care of things that are on the horizon obviously going to happen. We know climate change is happening and is going to happen worse and the phase out of coal is inevitable. So you'd think governments would be having a, a transition plan. Is there um, anything being done by the trade unions? Do you think they, in fact, also should be thinking of blueprints for how this would be done and managed? Yeah, definitely. I think this needs to happen. Um, the Australian Services Union, ASU, in South Australia has just started to do some really good work in this area, um, recognising the need for just transitions. So this is becoming one of their focuses. Um, and they're trying to popularise this idea that we, we can't just let stranded assets become stranded communities mm. we actually need a plan um, So, and we have been working quite well with other unions like the CFMEU in the past around the Port Augusta campaign so it would be really great for the more unions to come on board with this and really yeah. be pushing this um, perspective that we do need just transitions for workers in this industry. So they have resources, which community groups, as you know, it's very hard to have the resources that they have. Okay, look, Beyond Zero Emissions Research found that Port Augusta was an ideal spot for that concentrated solar thermal power project. Listeners, you might remember the picture on the Beyond Zero's book with all these heliostats around a central tower with this molten salt storing it, so you have 24-hour a day energy but it hasn't happened yet the community is still very keen what lessons did you learn from the campaign sure i think it's been i mean obviously it's still an ongoing campaign and we haven't won yet but i think we are closer than ever and Mm -hmm. it's definitely come a long way um some lessons 
that I found from the campaign was that it's crucial to involve the community in campaigns like this that are going to affect them. So we can't just people from the city, activists from the city can't just come in and speak for them. Um, it really needs to be community-led um, and people will come to their own conclusions about things like this once they um, yeah, are engaged with and realise the impact it could have on their communities. Um, I think also the importance of building broad alliances and um, being united on issues, on things that we agree on. Um, so the Repower Port Augusta Alliance in South Australia had a really strong role in making mm. this bringing this issue to the fore um, so it was environment groups working with unions, working with councils um, and health groups um, a range of different groups working together to try and make this happen yeah. um, Well that takes us to the this community action, now let's start talking about the climate rallies that have been happening we're speaking um, in Sydney just as the uh, Paris talks are going on um, there were huge numbers marching for climate action around the world. Even the Pope was rallying people around a simple demand of 100% renewables and a focus on vulnerable populations. I think, you know, that was definitely in his um, Laudato Si. Do you think these rallies can unify people if they have strong demands, clear demands, and get them to continue to apply pressure when the Paris talks are over? And if so, what could the demands be? Yeah, I think the marches were really inspiring. It was really great to see. These were, I believe, you know, the biggest climate marches in Australia's history that we mm. saw. And it was certainly the biggest march in my hometown, Adelaide, that um, I've seen for a number of years on any issue, actually. Um, so I think they're crucial that I have a, a mass action perspective of change. I think change is going to come about by the majority of people coming on board and getting involved um, and them having the power rather than necessarily our elected leaders um, so I think it's crucial people keep getting out in the streets and keep getting involved in community activism um, and it's never never just going to be a one-off march and no. it'll all be done I think this has to really be an ongoing movement which I think is a, the plan in, in South Australia to, to build those, on those connections that were made with faith groups and unions and environment groups to really work together to make this an ongoing sustained movement that we need everyone to be involved in. Mm. What would the demands be? You know, it's hard to see. It's sort of shallow. All these people, it's sort of the big message was do something about climate, I think, could come out of that. And all those people have had private meetings and organising meetings. But what could unify them? A, a strong message, not just do something. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was lacking from the marches around the country um, was some strong demands. And I think... You know, this involves... It, it requires democratising the movement, so it can't just be just be led by the big NGOs. We really have to open it up to um, engage ordinary citizens and um, community members to really be part of it so that we can have democratic discussions about what these demands should be. Um, I think we could probably get agreement on things like um, leaving fossil fuels in the ground, uh, no new coal mines, I think moving to 100% renewable energy... Um, Demands like this could really be quite powerful if, if these numbers of people came out in support of a bit more concrete demands like this, generally around around leaving fossil fuels in the ground and transitioning with a just, just transition and jobs has to be central to it as well, to 100% renewables. Okay, so rallies is one big part of it, but 
When I think of climate action, I admire the people who've locked on, for example, over three years up at Moores Creek, quite a remote place, and people came from far and wide to join them. Um, they just did that. They wanted to stop the forest being destroyed, and in fact, they failed. We've interviewed people now. It's a sort of a place of pilgrimage, Moores Creek, the forest there. I also think of the Mackay Conservation Group taking the federal government to court for, you know, not applying the Environmental Protection Act as they should have. But still, the mining approvals go ahead. What more can citizens do? Yeah, I think in the, the climate movement, there's a range of, of tactics that can be used, and I don't think any tactics are inherently better than any others. I think it all depends on the context and what is best for that uh, at the time. So, you know, that might be locking on, that might be a mass rally, it might be, um, you know, door knocking, whatever is going to build the movement at that stage. I think the main question we need to ask is what, in each particular context, is going to bring more people on board with this movement and what is going to progress their consciousness and help them get involved more and help it be a bigger, powerful, more powerful movement. Um, so for me, what people can do and should do is basically just get involved in community organising in whatever way mm. they can. So whatever is happening in their local community, if there's a campaign against coal seam gas in your local community, getting involved in that. If um, what's happening in your area is, if you're, if you're at a university and your university is um, investing in fossil fuels, then get involved in a campus divestment campaign. I think, yeah, it's not there's not one thing necessarily, but I think it has to be collective and it has to be organised. I think that's more powerful than the individual actions you can take. Like you can always, always you know, improve, make changes in your life. But I think what's really going to change is organising with other people, getting together organising democratically and, and making changes in your local area as well as building a mass broad movement. Okay. I think the mainstream media talk about this in a disempowering way. They say things like it's such an existential crisis, people can't actually see climate change, people in Australia especially can't really see it because we've had droughts before, we've had fires before, all of that. And so they disempower people by just saying there's nothing you can do about it, it's so big and getting a global agreement is so big and I've heard a lot of radio, especially and I've seen newspaper articles that are along those lines. Um, it, because climate change is different than, say, uh, you know, an invasion of your country by a country that you could go to war with, that sort of threat, it's a very different threat. Do you th see that there's something else, something deeper that needs to be done? Okay, well, firstly, I'd probably dispute that we're not seeing the impacts of climate change already. Um, maybe we're not connecting the dots well enough, because, but I think they're definitely already happening. I mean, we're seeing flooding in India at the moment where hundreds of people have died in the last couple of weeks um, which is clearly linked to climate change. We're seeing more frequent bushfires here in South Australia and here around Australia mm. um, and yeah we're already seeing huge impacts of climate change around the world but I you know I agree it's, it's not as kind of uh, immediate maybe as, as other as other threats um, in some people's perspectives. So and The media have always been saying this is just a one-off, haven't they, until very recently. Remember Tony Abbott and Adam Bant criticised him and said, you know, you're culpable because this is all connected. And yeah. the media have been calming us. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, obviously the media has some very direct interests that it's in their in their interest to say these things. It's obviously we've got a very concentrated media monopoly in Australia. Um, it's owned by some pretty pretty big interests and that have connections with fossil fuel companies and that don't really want 
uh, different worldview to be presented. So it's not it's not a surprise that they're trying to downplay this because, mm-hmm. and I think you know, Naomi Klein points out that um, of course these media institutions and conservatives will try and downplay it because I think because the implications if people realise are so huge for the for the system um, and for the way that we do things. If people realise that um, climate change is actually connected to a range of other issues and it's all part of, I guess, this systematic failure of the system that we live in, then people will start to ask questions and maybe start to ask what, what the alternative is. So um, I think it's, it's really important that we do start to make those connections between different issues um, and do start to to wake up to what's happening. Okay, Gemma, just to finish, could you tell us what would an eco-socialist society look like and how could we get there, given the drama of climate change right on the horizon? Sure. So it's a big question, but I think if we're envisioning a world that um, is a, it's a different one to what we've got now, I think it would be... There's two key things. One, it would be based on the best ecological principles, so we would um, be able to prioritise stopping all these anti-environmental practices and start restoring some of the damage we've done. Um, We would be changing our energy systems, so we'd be moving towards 100% renewable energy um, and also, you know, stopping fossil fuel um, extraction. And I think the other side of it is it would have to be, um, effectively, it would have to be socialist, which means it would be committed to democracy. It can't just be imposed by a minority. It has to be led um, and run by the majority of people who have to have a say into it. Um, and there'll be radical egalitarianism and social justice, which is very different to what we have now. So I think we'd need to change the means of production. At the moment, it's very, it's privately owned. Uh, majority of people work socially and collectively, but they don't actually own the means of production. That's owned privately. So it would be, you know, workers run, very collectively run, and... I guess profit would be removed as the main driving force and instead it would be based on the needs of people and the needs of the planet. That would be what drives the economy. So I guess getting there is the big question, but I mean, ultimately we're going to need an eco-socialist revolution, a big break in the, the current way of doing things, but this is obviously not going to be easy or quick and we need to get to the starting point, which for me um, is requires people to be activists and it's going to require building a really broad, diverse, mass movement that is going to increasingly get more and more people on board um, that's going to be eventually big enough that we actually will have the opportunity to make such an eco-socialist revolution. So, for example, we need to be involved in campaigns that change things on the ground now. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a campaign for solar thermal in Port Augusta or... In indigenous communities leading struggles against fossil fuel extraction in their in their hometowns um, and I think through these by being involved in these struggles for reforms today people will start to learn the lessons about collective action about how change comes about they'll start to realize their own power which I think is really important because at the moment we're surrendering our power we just you know don't know that we have it mm. um, and they'll be able to build the confidence to take on bigger targets and move forward. So I think it's, it's you know, it's the hard slog answer, but it's only really by participating in these campaigns and struggles that the movement's going to grow, and then it'll win a larger hearing from more and more people, and it, that'll, that's what's ultimately will make an eco-socialist revolution possible. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So that was Gemma Weedle 
from Clean in South Australia, and uh, she's been talking to us about eco-socialism, and I'm sure we'll hear more about that. Interview Ian Angus, we might come back to Gemma then. Thank you very much, Gemma. And that's it for the show tonight. I've uh, run out of time as usual. Thanks uh, to the Save the Albert Park people for their patience. Uh, just a quick thank you to the team. That's Miwa, Roger, Roger Teddy, Jody, and Glenn on behalf of Vivian and myself. There's some great uh, things for you to look up on the website. So don't forget to go to slf.org.au uh, to look at the program starting this weekend and also check out renewaustralia.org.au for a plan by the Greens Party on how to achieve 90% renewables by 2030.